Genesis chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 15 as we continue on our series in the book of Genesis. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we recognize that sin and death has scarred so much of this good world that you've made, and even us, what you created us for, what you intended for us. We have transgressed your law and so been plunged into sin and misery. I pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we would receive this word, that we would know from it uh, not only the weight and guilt of sin, but also the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. None of us like facing the consequences of our sinful actions. One of the results of the fall and of sin is that we all recognize guilt and shame for the bad things that we do. This started at the beginning. When we looked at the fall, we saw how Adam and Eve, when they sinned, their first need was to be covered. The first thing that they felt was shame. And we, too, want to cover things up and to hide from things. When I was in kindergarten... A kid named Joe, who was in my class, and I, we got into a fight. 
Now, I was never much of a fighter. In fact, this was the only fight in school that I ever got in. I was like six. But it was bad enough that that afternoon, the principal had to come to our class and get Joe and I and took us to his office. Now, Joe and I had had this fight uh, off in a corner of the playground where no adult saw us. So the teachers were relying on the testimony of third parties of other kids who saw us fighting. And in not my proudest moment, and probably not in Joe's proudest moment either, when we were both in the principal's office, when we were asked about the fight, we just both simply denied that it had happened. And they had to let us go because they didn't see it. I was six years old. I did not need to be taught to sin and to lie to cover up my sins or try to run away from the consequences. I just knew that that was something that I could do. Now, last time in Genesis, we saw how through Adam and Eve's sin of eating the forbidden fruit, they, along with the world, was plunged into sin and death, and with them all that would proceed from them. We saw Adam and Eve's initial vain attempts to cover up their sin and hide from God. This was something much more serious than a playground fight. And there was no hiding from what they had done. It would have been grave. It would have had severe consequences for them and all who would come in the human race thereafter. Last week, God spoke to them, to Adam and Eve, of these consequences. But this week, in chapter 4 of Genesis, we see the horror of those consequences in action. We see how quickly and how mightily evil and sin and death take hold of the human race through the story of Adam and Eve's first two sons. While the gospel was promised in Genesis 3.15, as we saw, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and undo this curse, there's a long road ahead to get there. And things are not going to get better for a very long time. So we see in this story of Cain and Abel, the first murder, the first taking of innocent human life, Adam and Eve, having fallen, will now taste the most bitter fruit of what their sin has wrought, the loss of one of their children and the banishment of another. Truly, it is a horrible thing. We will look at this horror today in four points. First, there is a sacrifice in verses 1 through 5. What was this sacrifice? Why was it done? Why was it received in the way that it was? And second, there is a sin in verses 6 through 8. The fallout from the sacrifice inspires Cain to do an unspeakable evil. Third, there is a sentence in verses 9 through 12. What does God do to Cain for his sin? And fourth and finally, a separation in verses 13 through 15. Cain's sin has profound temporal and spiritual consequences. So again, we have a sacrifice, we have sin, we have a sentence, and we have separation. So first we will look at the sacrifice in verses 1 through 5. We see, picking up in the damage and the wreckage of the fall that we saw last week, that all is not lost. While the world has been marred, scarred, and damaged, while pain and sorrow and grief are now present in creation, There remains life. There remains hope. 
and that while Adam and Eve have now entered into the state of sin and misery, they are allowed to continue to live and enjoy many of the blessings of this life, even if through trial and hardship. And one such blessing, as we see here, is the bearing of children. While childbearing is now cursed and painful, it continues on. We see forming in these chapters immediately post-fall a concept that many theologians refer to as common grace. While it is not grace in the sense that all who partake of it are redeemed, there is genuine favor and good providence shown by God in allowing the world to continue and allowing temporal life to exist, allowing material blessings to come even on those who are fallen and sinful. See, strict justice would have resulted in Adam and Eve's death and destruction at the moment of their fall and sin. But God not only withholds his wrath, he continues to show in many ways favor and blessing. And so in verses 1 and 2, we have the conception and birth of two sons. Now that there is one conception and two births noted, it causes some, including John Calvin, to think that perhaps these two sons were twins with Cain born first and Abel following. Now, unlike the way that we often treat names in our day, where we just pick a name we may like for some you know, strange reason, biblical names are usually loaded with meaning. Cain is so named because his name means that he has come with the help of the Lord. Now, this is interpreted in various ways. Some take this to mean that Eve believes that already, with the bearing of her first son, she has the promised serpent crusher in Cain, the one who is going to undo the curse, the one prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Others take it to simply mean that Eve recognizes that this child is a blessing, a good gift from the Lord when she was, deli- she was deserving of misery and death. But either way, her statement indicates her faith and God, her faith in God, despite the fall and sin. Now, Abel's name, however, is much less flattering. The Hebrew word from which Abel's name is derived is hevel. It's a word that means vain or fleeting. It's the same word that appears in the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes, where The preacher talks about how vanity of vanities, all is vanity, over and over again. He uses that word. So while recognizing that God's favor has been shown in the birth of the first son, in naming the second son, she acknowledges grief and sorrow, and knowing that the son is born into a life of difficulty and suffering that has come at her hand. Now, tragically, this naming is somewhat prophetic, as we will see in what becomes of Abel. We read at the end of verse 2 that Cain and Abel take on different vocations. As was promised, after the fall, work will continue. The taking of dominion will proceed, though with greater difficulty. We see that Cain takes on tilling the ground, takes on farming, and Abel becomes a keeper of sheep. So dominion is still seen and that the ground can be worked for food and animals can be domesticated to meet human needs. But life for Cain and Abel is not merely taken up in secular vocation, this work of farming and raising animals. We see that there is also religious life present from the very beginning. 
Calvin notes that this did not come from nowhere. Cain and Abel, they were born. They were babies. They had to learn. They had to grow. And they would have had to have been taught by their parents not only to work, but also to worship. So these two sons were raised in the knowledge of God and recognized a duty to worship him by the bringing of sacrifices. Now, we don't know specifically what they knew or what they were told concerning sacrifices, but it seems that there was some revelation of God that was not recorded for us, but that did tell this first family how they were to worship him. Now, we do read, for instance, in Hebrews 11.4, that Abel offered a sacrifice in faith. And faith requires an object. It requires content. It has to be in something. It has to believe truths and understand and apprehend truths about something, specifically someone who is God. In verse 3, Cain brings an offering to God of the fruits of the ground. Whatever crop he was growing, he brought some of that to God. But in verse 4, Abel brings an animal offering, the firstborn of the flock. And we see that God responds differently to these two men and their two offerings. He accepts Abel and his offering, but does not accept Cain and his offering. Now it is important to note that this acceptance or lack thereof is both of the person and of the offering. So what is going on here? Why does God accept Abel and not Cain? There are various theories put forth. Some say that Cain offered inferior fruit of the ground. He offered leftovers, bad things, while Abel offered the best of his flock. This is, in fact, what I was taught as a child, that Cain was just a bad dude who offered a bad sacrifice, and that's why he was not accepted. It could be something to that, but the text doesn't really tell us. Others say that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable because it was a blood sacrifice, whereas Cain merely offered a plant sacrifice. Now there is definitely a principle of blood atonement for sins. We already saw this last week with the animals that had to be killed to give Adam and Eve clothing, to give them covering for their sins. But again, we don't have the particular instructions of sacrifice that Cain and Abel received. But I think what is most important here is what I said before. It is not only that God is accepting or rejecting the sacrifice, he is accepting or rejecting the man. So God accepted both Abel and his sacrifice while rejecting Cain and his sacrifice. We can refer again to Hebrews 11, that text where Abel brought his sacrifice in faith. So what I think we have here in Genesis 4 is the first time in Scripture where we see the juxtaposition between true faith and empty works. Abel believed God and brought a sacrifice in faith. Cain did not believe God. He did not truly belong to God. So no sacrifice he brought would be acceptable. Many times in the Old Testament, it is made clear that faith is more important than sacrifice. While God does command and prescribe sacrifices, they are nothing in themselves. They only have meaning when united to Christ in faith. So Abel, by bringing a sacrifice in faith, was partaking of the grace of Christ through the types and shadows, while Cain's faithless sacrifice was vain and empty. 
And we will see Cain's faithlessness and wickedness reflected in how he responds to God's reception and denial of these sacrifices at the end of verse 5. It says, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And this brings us to our next point. After the sacrifice, we come to sin in verses 6 through 8. We see that God, knowing what is in the heart of Cain after his sacrifice was not acceptable, speaks to Cain in verses 6 and 7. God asks Cain why he is angry and has turned his face away. Cain is angry at his brother because he is jealous of him, but he is also angry at God. For all Abel has really done is what God requires of him. He brought an acceptable sacrifice in faith and repentance. Cain has done less than that. He has brought a sacrifice that is unacceptable because his heart is unacceptable. He is not seeking God's mercy, which is what is needed in the fallen and sinful world. Instead, he is, speaking, he is seeking his own glory and is angry when he does not receive it. And so in verse 7, God issues to Cain what is essentially a call to repentance. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, this is not to say that Cain will be saved by meritorious works, that he'll push the right buttons and God will reward him. What it does mean is that Cain must approach God rightly, with the right posture and with the right actions for worship. And in this, pride is excluded. Cain clearly came to the sacrifice, presuming upon God that God would accept what he had offered. And when the sacrifice was not acceptable, rather than ask himself why, rather than examine himself and what was wrong in himself and what he had done, he does what we all like to do when we are confronted with our own sin. Blame others. Rather than amend his ways, Cain is jealous of Abel, angry at God, and God confronts him directly with this. If Cain had done as Abel had done, approaching God rightly, there was no reason why Cain would not have found the same favor. This was not a competition. The fault for Cain's rejection falls squarely on his own head. And God, in his mercy, is allowing Cain the opportunity to right the situation by repentance. But the call to repentance also comes with a warning. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. The jealousy and anger of Cain, while itself wicked and sinful, if not tended to, will produce even worse sins. And this is not just true of Cain. While jealousy and unrighteous anger are sinful themselves, jealousy being covetousness in violation of the Tenth Commandment, unjust anger being comparable to murder in the heart and violating the Sixth Commandment, these sinful thoughts leave the door open for sinful actions to come spilling out. It is not out of nowhere that people steal or kill or commit adultery or commit acts of violence against neighbor. Sinful actions proceed from sinful thoughts and desires not taken captive. God's warning to Cain is a warning to all of us. If we harbor such thoughts, we are in danger. We have here and other places we've lived at times had mice in our house. 
I'm a fan of using the old style snap traps to eliminate mice. They're quick, they're cheap, they get the job done. Those traps, they use bait. You put peanut butter or cheese or something else on them that mice like. But they don't usually go off because just in one fell swoop, the mouse comes in and grabs the whole bait all at once. Usually when the mouse becomes aware of the bait, the mouse will kind of hang around it a little bit, poke around, sniff around, maybe think about eating a little, maybe not, and then a whisker or a paw or something else unknowingly triggers the trap. That is the danger of sin. We might think that we're under control, that we won't get too far, and what we're into is not known, but God knows that sin and death is at the door. We should never feel safe desiring and thinking what is contrary to God's will. None of us are without the remnants of sin in us. Even as Christians, we must be striving to rule over sin, to continually reject it and put it to death in our lives, even the parts that are secret and unknown. But Cain will not rule over his sin. He will not repent and turn away from it. He will continue to sniff around the trap. In verse 8, we see the tragic and wicked consequences. We see that Cain goes to talk to Abel. We don't know what about specifically, but it seems it would be very hard for anyone to anticipate what comes next. After some undisclosed period of time, Cain rises up against Abel and kills him. If there was any doubt as to just how far the world had fallen since the paradise state of Genesis 2, we now have the full horrific display. What could be a greater demonstration of evil than not only the harmony of the family being disturbed and broken, but it advancing so far as to result in brother rising up against brother in violence and murder? Not only does Cain not heed the voice of God to turn from his sin, he sins more, and in fact, in one of the worst ways imaginable. And for this sin, there will be consequences. There must be consequences. And this brings us to our third point. After the sacrifice and sin, we come to the sentence in verses 9 through 12. Once Cain has murdered his brother, God appears to him and speaks to him again. Where is Abel, your brother? Now, this is a similar prosecution that we saw in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, God appears, and they hide, and God asks them where they were. Now, it is not as though God did not know. He knew also where Abel was in chapter 4. But God comes as judge to try the offender for the crime at hand. And Cain's response is one of denial. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's too high view of himself and too low view of God is fully manifested here. Not only did he think he could trick God by offering a sacrifice not in faith, but in pride and entitlement, now he thinks he can trick God by covering up the murder of his brother. The power of self-deception is great when we are in sin and rebellion against God. But God knows and sees everything. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He knows the pain and sorrow and suffering we inflict in others. 
And he is the all-knowing judge. Cain should have been his brother's keeper. He had a duty to love him, to respect his person, to seek his good, just as we all do for our fellow image bearers of God. But Cain has no regard for God and no regard for his brother. This is the ultimate problem of all sin. We understand God's law and its two tables, the first four commandments dealing with love of God, the last six dealing with love for neighbor. And we understand that sin is the lack of conformity or transgression of this law, as our catechism teaches. So for Cain, sin in both kinds is on display. He thinks too little of God, worshiping him and regarding him as less than he is, even thinking that he might not know what I've done to my brother. And he thought too little of Abel, murdering him striking him down out of pure, petty resentment and jealousy. But God will judge Cain for this, in this life and the life to come. In verse 10, God speaks again, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What Cain had thought he had done in secret was well known to God. One of God's people, one of God's children, had been struck down that day. And God will not stand idly by while such injustice is done. And God delivers a verdict and a sentence to Cain in verse 11. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. There will be an intensification of the curse pronounced before to Adam, now pronounced to Cain. This continues in verse 12. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So Cain will be banished. He will be separated from home and family and set to wander upon the earth. And that brings us to our final point. After the sacrifice, sin, and sentence, we see a separation in verses 13 through 15. Cain is now cursed to be this fugitive and wanderer. He will not die, which is the typical punishment for murder, and is more explicitly prescribed after the flood in Genesis 9. But Cain and his family and the nations that proceed from him will be isolated, not only from family and land, but from God. And Cain realizes the severity of this sentence immediately. He speaks in verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now previously he had no regard for his brother's life, but his own exile and isolation are a cause of such protest. He will be isolated, alone, away from the life that he knew. But Cain also recognizes a spiritual separation that proceeds from this. I shall be hidden from your face. He acknowledges what has been true this whole time. He does not belong to God. He is not one of God's people. While he was visibly part of the family of God thus far, he will now have a physical separation to go with his spiritual separation. He has proven by his life and practice that he belongs not to the city of God, but to the city of man. And now the separation will manifest itself in the growth of two separate nations, two separate peoples, one that regards and worships God and one that does not. 
However, while redemptive grace and repentance does not come for Cain and his people, this common grace I mentioned before will continue. Cain fears for his life at the end of verse 14, rather ironically, anyone who finds me will kill me. So Cain had no problem killing Abel out of spite and jealousy, but now he is pleading for his own life with a God that he does not regard. What a sad scene. But God will spare Cain's life. He pronounces another curse on Cain in verse 15. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And then this sign is sealed with a mark. Now, we don't know exactly what this mark was, but there is some sort of distinction made upon Cain that he was a murderer and that he was to be exiled but not killed. Calvin speculates that perhaps this mark was itself something scary, something terrifying, some sort of deformity that would repel and repulse people. And that would keep people away from him so that they would not kill him. But whatever the mark was, God has purposed for the sake of the growth of humanity and for his own purposes to let Cain live. Cain will have children. These children will invent things. They'll build cities. They'll develop culture and civilization. But Cain and his posterity most vitally will live outside of the presence of God. Whatever benefits they have will only be of the earth. They will live outside of the covenant of grace. But let us now take a step back to Adam and Eve. Imagine seeing this horror unfold from their perspective. What should have been good and right things, the bearing of children and the worship of God, had broken forth in violence that will cost them not one, but two sons. Abel is dead and Cain will be exiled, a horror, a byword from their presence. If they had wondered still at this point what sort of sin and misery would result from their fall, they now have a very clear answer. Murder and death will abound. Families will be torn apart. There will be estrangement, isolation, and exile on the earth. And most of all, the grace that God extends does not come to all. Many will live and die away from the presence of God and will face wrath and destruction. So where is their hope to be found in this bitter and sorrowful account? It does seem at the end that this naming of Abel was very apt. Vanity, hopelessness, gone like a breath. And in such a way that the temporal consequences of that sin will tear the world as it was at the time apart. But it was not truly Abel, but Cain, who was vain and fleeting. His sacrifice was vain because it was not brought in faith. His life is vain because he has taken the life of another. His soul is vain because he will not repent and remains cursed by God. However, as I mentioned before, there is a recollection of this story in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4. Abel is the first name listed in the so-called Hall of Faith, listing the saints of old and how they demonstrated faith in God. And Hebrews 11:4 says this, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, 
and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Though his name might have indicated otherwise, and though his life was cut short, his life was not in vain. Abel was a man of faith. He offered a more excellent sacrifice because it was the sacrifice of faith. Because he came in faith, God received the sacrifice and received him. Though his life was cut short, yet he lives. The author of Hebrews testifies that Abel still speaks. Though Abel died that day, he was received into eternal rest and glory because he, through the types and shadows, beheld Christ, the perfect and most excellent Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Abel still speaks as a testimony to salvation in Christ, even for those who do suffer and die and lead seemingly vain lives in this world. See, Christ undoes what Adam did and what Cain did, not in this world, but in the world to come. Even in this horrible ordeal of Cain and Abel, we see the gospel held out. So perhaps you are here today and the closest analog to you in the story is Cain, hardened in your heart and rebelling against God, harboring sin and anger and jealousy, going through empty motions of worship, though your heart is far from the Lord. You do not have to go down the path of Cain, following that sin to the temporal and spiritual death it produces. The gospel seen in Abel is the gospel of Christ. And it is offered to you this day to those who would humble themselves, repent of their sins and believe in Christ, the perfect once for all sacrifice. There is forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. And so the call today is to turn from sin, to repent and believe in Christ while there is still yet time and to love and honor and serve him in all that we do in this life. And that is the life that is not in vain. Let us pray. Father, we confess that in this word we see hard things, sorrowful things, difficult things. We see the true ugliness and the destruction of sin. We see it held out not only as history of what has happened, but also as a warning to all of us. And so I pray that by your Spirit, we would be made aware of our sin, that we would turn from it, that we would put it to death, that we would flee from it. Most of all, I pray that we would believe in and trust in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was the once-for-all sacrifice prefigured for us by Abel and his sacrifice, and whom Abel received of through types and shadows, And through it, he now still speaks to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.